God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey everyone, this is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you can come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations, to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. My guest this week is the pastor at Holy Redeemer in Michigan. He is the creative force of nature behind memes and social media posts that grab you by the heart and often make you think about what you believe and why. I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast today, Father Kenneth Tanner. Father Ken, thank you so much for being here. It's great. Thank you, Jace, for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been following your work online for a long time, but it's our first chance to speak in person, and I'm really pumped about that. Would you start us off today by telling us a little about your history? I understand you were raised Pentecostal in the Cleveland, Tennessee branch of the Church of God, and then went more charismatic. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. A couple generations of Pentecostals. Of course, there aren't that many, but sort of late 19th century Wesleyan holiness folks who in the early 20th century got involved in in Pentecostal revivals and uh, in the hills there in Tennessee and in Alabama and Florida on my mother's side. And uh, my mother's father was a minister in the Church of God. Both my my, uh, my father's side of the family are from Cleveland, literally, and uh, relocated to Florida where they were uh, they met uh, in a Little Church of God on uh, Orange Avenue in uh, Orlando, Florida. Wow. And, and and I was raised in that and that spirituality, which I have great affection for. Yeah, that was my next question. When you look at those years of your life now, how do you view that period spiritually? Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, these just people in this little church, which is somewhat like a, a sort of southern country church in the middle of this relatively big town, even in the in the late 60s and, and 70s, a lot of old saints, a lot of folks in their you know, 70s, 80s probably grew up rural, simple faith in Jesus and his blood, poor families for the most part, really believed in prayer, really believed in encountering the living God in scripture, prayed for their children, their grandchildren, their neighbors. My, my grandmother my grandparents always had people, you know, though they were had little means and they were day laborers and so forth. They had people in their homes on Sundays, opened up their homes and had meals for people. So I, I have a lot of affection for it. I, I began to see things that were concerns to me as I got older and some of the legalism and and external holiness and these the, the kind of things that could be bondages, I, I, I began to see as I grew older. But but I always start with the, my affection for it. And my my father was killed in Vietnam, 
1970. He was a major in the Army. Oh, I'm sorry. And my mother was widowed about five years. And then she met a minister, a young, not too recent, not, you know, pretty recently converted hippie. <laughs> uh, so he was such a different person from my, from my, my, my dad and my father. And, uh, but he was dad immediately. It was I, not having a father for five years, he, but he was a beautiful man. And he, uh, he married my mother and was doing youth ministry and kind of associate pastor work in Church of Gods himself, but not having been raised in any, was baptized Lutheran, raised Baptist, kind of went off his life, went off the rails and to all kinds of things. And then he came back, was converted again by reading the Bible, a Bible his mother gave him. Very, very young and green as a minister. But he had lots of different ideas from, you know, the Pentecostalism that he had he had sort of found faith in again. And he took us into more charismatic circles. His He had independent charismatic churches for late 70s and the 80s, we rode every wave of my parents were, you know, they kind of were just like anything that came along, they, in the charismatic movement, was lots of interesting teachings, but also sort of bizarre ideas and teaching. And they wrote all of those. And, and by the time I got to Oral Roberts University, I, I did a year at an Assemblies of God College in California. By the time I got to Oral Roberts University, that school, which has a, a I mean, just an amazing faculty, uh, because it was founded in the late six, mid late sixties by Oral Roberts, you know, televangelist and sort of tent preacher. It, it had uh, when he started, it was like the you know heights of the charismatic movement, and and people that movement affected Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Catholics, and uh, there were there were people from you know Brown and uh, University of Missouri and different places that like left tendered positions to come teach there. So people don't realize that the faculty were, I got there in the mid 80s, the faculty were amazing. But the spiritual life was, as you might imagine, some of the strangest theology of the charismatic renewal, late charismatic renewal was what's happening there. And, and, I, and I got there and just it got to a crisis point in my faith when I was about 19, 20, attending school there. I remember when I kind of made that move from Cleveland, Tennessee Church of God into a more charismatic, I guess, kind of Toronto blessing, kind of a mixture of that and the vineyard, maybe. It's kind of the direction that I went. But at the same time, there were, you know, incredible movements taking place around the country. I mean, there were reports of, you know, gold dust falling from the ceiling and people getting gold teeth and and all of that kind of stuff. And I mean, the charismatic movement for me was really good until it wasn't. Yeah. But but uh, ORU was kind of like the centerpiece of that universe, at least in the circles that I traveled. Did you feel that on campus there as well? Oh, for sure. And it, there's so many beautiful things about it. Like the, the charismatic movement brought Christians together from all these different backgrounds. It was like the you know missionary uh, movements broke down barriers and denominational walls and people hanging out together, you know, until the denominational authorities and the churches started getting worried about all these people hanging out together and started setting up rules and things. But there's lots of genuine, authentic, beautiful things that were said and done. And before, it, as you say, it, it, it got weird, <laughs> you know, really weird at times. So you talked about a crisis of faith that took place there. What led to that? For you. Yeah, so it, it, there's a lot leading up to this, but very simple. I'll just tell a story that's paradigmatic. I was a, my third, second year at ORU, 
January of 1986, the shuttle Challenger blew up. Happened in the morning. Uh, it was a morning launch out of Florida. And or ORU is a TV and film and music campus and lots of people involved in training for television. And we had our we had these closed circuit TVs in our in our rooms and ev- learning centers everywhere we were. So everybody had seen this event, which was really horrific. It's hard to put people, some people back there who, who weren't alive at the time or were very young at the time. But, you know, the space program was a huge part of like sort of American identity. And it was a great tragedy to see these people, you know, some, something like that fail and these people die and everything. And most of the most of us had witnessed it. Well, we had chapel that morning. And so all the grad schools and the undergrad school came together for chapel late morning and the man who was in charge said you know look we've had this tragedy today it's it's terrible but we're here to worship god <laughs> and they had all their singers and all the guitars and drums and they went into the sort of typical praise and you know i mean hoot nanny that you know would take place and i just sat down and i was like i can't do this anymore how's it possible that there's this reality that's happening around us that is so mournful and and horrible and and we can't come in here and talk about this and we can't we can't lament we can't pray we can't like sing maybe sing something that's a little less upbeat and so forth and so on we can't respond to the actual world you know as it's happening it was really interesting just position that took place that day the only time I remember a member of the faculty, theological faculty, speaking in our chapel service, there's usually some celebrity uh, with some some either anecdote or, or twist on a, a teaching that was out there. But this man got up and said he he was he's a Pentecostal scholar, uh, historian, and wrote a book called uh, From the Pinnacle of the Temple. And his wife had died of cancer, and he, he got up and and said, "I wanted to share with you today how." When I went through this experience uh, of my my wife dying, um, how we came to understand her death as a participation in the death of Jesus, the participation in the cross. And more interestingly to me was how he said they came to experience Christ with them and their suffering and in her dying so they 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 had been incorporated into the cross by this event, and Christ had been incorporated into their suffering. I want to know more about that. And so within a week or two, I ran into a book by a man named Thomas Howard, who was a professor at Gordon College, who had Elizabeth Elliot's brother through Gates of Splendor, the missionaries who perished. He's a Wheaton grad and from an you know, evangelical family. And he wrote this book called Evangelicals Not Enough. And it's a really interesting text. He starts out telling the story of what it means to be an evangelical Christian in mid-20th century America and flannel graphs in Sunday school and old 19th century evangelical blood hymns and reading the Bible and memorizing the Bible and personal relationship with Jesus. And even though he wasn't a Pentecostal, there was so much that I was like, yep, yep, yep. And then, you know, he sort of ends the chapter of sort of appreciation of his formation and the faith that he said, I got to the point where I realized that wasn't enough. And so second chapter, he opens up with Irenaeus and recapitulation and how God becomes flesh in order not just to save 
me, but to save humanity, and not just to save humanity, but to save the, the creation. And that uh, God created this world in goodness. He's not about destroying, and he's not about destroying us. He's about reconciling everything to himself. And that he came amongst us and suffered as one of us. And that just launched me into a whole decades of investigation of how the first Christians organized themselves as as a church and what they taught and mostly their encounter with the person of Jesus Christ and how that transformed their lives, their communities, and, and Roman society. And so, and a faith that I was finally able to say, okay, this is answerable to the real world. This is a God that's in the real world that's interested in saving the world as it is, saving humanity as we are. And it wasn't, as unfortunately some of my Pentecostal charismatic experiences, it wasn't escapist. It wasn't, as Bonhoeffer says, you know, as we seek to escape our humanity, as we seek to escape the world to some other place, either in our worship which is very Pentecostal charismatic religion has this tendency of like, let's escape whatever's going on around us and like get to this higher plane of spirituality. This is a platonic thing that's going on or like, let's leave this world all behind for another world is very deep in that spirituality. This is a world affirming creation, affirming life, affirming a restorative reconciling gospel and and not but but a god who's interested in all of these things and loves us so yeah that's changed my life and and while i i still consider myself a pentecostal I, i've embraced the worship and practices and theology of the first christians because i find it puts me into relationship with jesus christ in a way that nothing else has or does. Yeah. When you were discussing that, that uh, the experience at ORU after the Challenger exploded, yeah. that was kind of in a nutshell, my struggle in the charismatic movement. There was no room for grief. Mm. There was no, you know, we were always looking for the next revelation or the next outpouring or the next, and it was, it seemed to be very focused, at least in the circles I traveled in on the end times and the next big thing God was going to do. And there just didn't seem to be those roots. And so when I first heard that you had kind of grown up Pentecostal, uh, I, I wondered how it was that you fell in love with the early church fathers and mothers that you seem to rely so heavily upon in your writing today online. And uh, so I appreciate you connecting those dots for us. That's awesome. Yes, sir. How did your calling find you like to be a pastor? I was always interested in listening to my grandmother read scripture to me. I loved my Sunday school teachers. I loved, we ended up in various kinds of schools. I was always gravitating to memorizing scripture and to the person of Jesus. And wherever my parents were in their spirituality, I was always exploring that, but also exploring other things. They, they were into Keswick for a while. They were into, I, I mean, I could just lots of things. And I was always interested in that, but it, like I would explore, like I, I was reading all of Francis Schaeffer, which was odd for a kid who's charismatic for a kid period. I mean, this is in my middle school years. And I, I started exploring Bart and, and it, I was interested because, you know, reading Schaeffer, he had all of these sort of figures that he was in opposition to. And I wanted to know where they were coming from. And so I started, especially in my 
high school and college years started to explore some of these sort of neo-Orthodox Protestant authors. Frederick Buechner became a huge influence in my life when I was in college. I felt I was going to end up in politics or writing. Those were the places I was studying a lot of how to write. And I was studying journalism and I was studying politics and at ORU and literature. So and the, it just like theology was always this thing I was doing on the side. You know, I, I, I left school and I, I, I started working for a newspaper. Then I was working for a NASDAQ farm, uh, uh, listed pharmaceutical company as a communications director. And, you know, it, it was, it was always about communication and things, but I, I, you know, I started reading, uh, I told you about Tom, Tom introduced me to Robert Weber and uh, Bob Weber introduced me to Tom Oden. So I was reading all of them, talking with those brothers, started getting involved in with Tom. Tom asked me to help him with the Ancient Christian Commentary and Scripture Project. And I was doing all of this sort of thing as it's like while I was working in marketing and communications and in corporations. I was involved with my dad's church and I started doing ministry, little things like teaching, you know, a Sunday school class or catechesis or something. And it just evolved into more and more of my life after we got married and had several little ones. And I went to a parochial seminary of our denomination and I was ordained as diaconate in the early 90s, the priesthood in the mid 90s. And I, I started out in a small mission in Hemet, California for several years. I took a sabbatical from all that and worked for Touchstone Magazine in Chicago for six years which brings together, still does, and Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant Christians. It's called a Journal of American Christianity. That was a whole sort of grad seminar that lasted for six years of traveling to theological conferences. I got to know Robert Jensen very well in that period and Richard Newhouse and, and some others and continued my relationship with uh, Bob Weber because we were living there in Chicago. John Wilson of Books and Culture became a good friend. And uh, the work that Carl Broughton and, and Robert Johnson were doing, bringing together uh, lots, of, lots of Christians under the banner of sort of evangelical Catholicity was important to me. The Orthodox, Orthodox Christians, Touchstone's based out of an Orthodox church. When I was in California doing ministry, I was dialoguing a lot with Orthodox Christians. And so the vocation just sort of it was an avocation that sort of overtook my life slowly. And then finally, in 05, I came to an existing parish of our denomination here in Michigan, and I've been its pastor for going on 15 years. Am I right? It's a charismatic Episcopal church? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, there are, it was founded mostly by third wave evangelical and Wesleyan and Pentecostal and charismatic ministers who discovered the prayers and practices and communal life and theology uh, of the first Christians and began to sort of organize their churches around the sacred year and prayer book worship in, in ways that wasn't completely dismissive of their the way that they did ministry as Pentecostals or third wave evangelicals. So there's still belief in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and the life of the church and spiritual gifts. And then a, a number of, quite a number of Episcopal churches that were looking for a church that, that was attentive to the Spirit and really interested in the ancient way of faith and the faith of the first Christians. And they came together with these sort of charismatic churches. So it was a like a marriage between a lot of 
formerly Episcopal church congregations in America and a lot of formerly charismatic. This podcast is called Messy Spirituality. It was Messy Church, for sure. Still is. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of church. <laughs> was and is. For this series, I wanted to talk to some deep thinkers like yourself about the church that you dream of, about your hopes and dreams for the church. What does the church you dream of look like? Well, I think, first of all, it's a church that's in love with Jesus Christ. And I, I know that sounds like really sort of, oh, duh, but... <sighs> Well, I mean something very specific by that. I mean, in love with the figure that the disciples experienced, the person that they encountered and that they witnessed to, his teaching, the way he lived, and their understanding that they had met the creator their eventual understanding, that they had met the creator of the universe in this human being. And the way that they reflected on that in the Gospels and the way the first Christians reflected on the New Testament documents and then the way that personal encounter with the living God in the flesh of Jesus was continued to be experienced by Christians for centuries after. Tom Oden taught me to appreciate that there's in all the diversity of orthodoxy that is out there, there was a consensus about who this person was as human and as God. A, a more recent teacher and friend, really we're, just co we're colleagues, but is John Bears, Father John Bear of St. Vladimir's, is, is someone that understands this, I think, is this person shows us what it means to be human, he shows us what it means to be God and uh, how we can really become human and how we really can become participants of divine nature. And I would love for the church in all its diversity to re-encounter the person of Jesus, to be converted to the person of Jesus Christ and what he teaches us about creation, about life, about what it means to live, which is to die for the life of the world that you love, and the humility and vulnerability and patience and charity and faithfulness of the God who makes the world that he embodies. So does that help when I say I, I, I'm talking about a church that is in love with Jesus Christ? Yeah, I, I love that. Practically, uh, let's talk ecclesiology for a minute. How is that church structured? First of all, the people of God are the body of Christ in the world. I've been thinking about this a lot this week in, in terms of saber rattling that's going on in the world. One of the problems that the church has had since Constantine is the first three, some, some hundred years, it was persecuted on the outside of culture and society. And then it all of a sudden becomes the religion of the empire. And I think we can go too far with some of all that. But I do think that we gradually got further and further and further away from uh, the person of Jesus. And I think Jesus is the, is the human being that shows us what it means to be the body of Christ in the world too. So the body of Christ is vulnerable the body of Christ is structured in a way that keeps it vulnerable. The, the body of Christ is structured in a way that keeps it humbled. 
the body of Christ is structured in a way that keeps it charitable. (laughs) The body of Christ is structured in a way that keeps it sacrificial. So whatever kinds of structures lend to vulnerability and to humility and to patience and to charity, that would be, I, I think, the way we need to reform the church is to look at the person of Jesus and make sure that our structures, because the church exists in time and in the material world. So I'm kind of suspicious of people who want to, again, this gets back to my own suspicion about my Pentecostal roots is over-spiritualized things. Because the church is in the material world, we need buildings, right, to gather. Whether you're, if you're, you know, where, wherever you are, you need to, you have to gather under, maybe that structure is a tree that you gather under in certain cultures. But, or it's a mud brick or whatever house, or it looks like the kind of churches we have in America, or it looks like homes, or it looks like basements underground in China or whatever. But you do have to gather somewhere physically. In, in Rome, it was the great, it was the catacombs underground. You do have to gather somewhere in the physical world around a table where there's bread and wine, and we can open up the scrolls or the Bible, and we can look into each other's eyes, and we can be vulnerable and truthful and and patient and kind with each other and help the poor. And it, that's got to happen in this material world. So there, in other words, institution isn't a bad word as long as that institution and those structures and those buildings are, are all the things that Paul describes in, in Corinthians as love, kindness, patience, long suffering, and so forth and so on. Not, not rude, not boastful. What specific practices or disciplines would the church that you dream of focus on? Hmm. Uh, in this, it, the current culture that, that we're living in, Jason, is distracted by a lot of voices, a lot of noise, a lot of passion, a lot of passions, envy and anger and impatience and, and these sorts of things. I, I do think that the first Christians and and Christianity in general as it's developed, not just the first several hundred years, but even in the medieval era and the Reformed area, their Renaissance and so forth, there are all kinds of ways that the Holy Spirit has directed the church and given it practices for various times and places. And many of these practices are still the same today. I think right now we need practices that help us develop silence in our hearts and in our our minds as shalom and peace. And so one of the things I do with men here is we've got a growing group on Friday mornings. We meet at six o'clock in the morning. We do what's a practice called Lectio, where we listen to a passage from scripture. We read it out loud. And then after it's been read, we sit in silence for two minutes and just ponder what we've heard, ruminating on a question. What is this? What is the author trying to say to us? And, and then each of us goes around the room and shares what in silence we pondered about the word that we've heard and how it's hit us. And we do this in three rounds. And by the time you're done with the silence and the listening, it's a listening, listening to each other as we've encountered the word of God, listening to the word of God read and listening in silence to God himself and the encounter with Jesus that we, that occurs in the scripture. We are over time. We've been doing about three years over time, I see all of us becoming better listener. I see us becoming more patient. 
I see us becoming people who aren't as frenetic and disconnected and jumbled and and disintegrated, but more integrated. So be practices like that. It would be practices like making ourselves vulnerable to the poor and to the prisoner and to the to the hungry and the naked and the the foreigner and the migrant and the refugee and all the people where Jesus what was all those things because he was human and where he tells us we'll find him. So practices that take us into our neighborhoods, into neighborhoods adjacent to us, ours, into places that we maybe are afraid to go or reluctant to go or don't think we're prepared to go and encounter the living presence of God and the poor and spirit or the actual of poor. So maybe practices that are, I, I've described a practice. The first practice I described is a practice that sort of a withdrawal, right? Into contemplation and, and listening and study. And, and the, the other practice would be to go out, right? And from the place of, of silence and contemplation and and recollection and integration, and then getting out into the world and taking that silence and taking that word that we've heard and taking that experience and encounter with the living God, our friendship with Christ, out into the places where he says we're going to encounter him. Does the church that you dream of, would it have a statement of faith? And if so, what might that sound like? I'm going to sound very traditional here. And that's okay, because I, I think we can learn a lot from all the different, and we can learn from progressive Christians, we can learn from Mennonites, we can learn from Catholics, we can learn from the Orthodox, we can learn from the Baptists. And But I do think, really, the Apostles' Creed, there's a lot of things that aren't broken in the church. And one of the things that's not broken is that Apostles' Creed. I, I, I have a lot of affection for the Nicene Creed, too, but I think the Apostles' Creed is the baptismal creed of the church. The creed that we, you know, memorize before, you know, we are incorporated into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in water uh, by the Spirit is is such a beautiful statement of the love of God for the world and how God enters into. He doesn't love the world outside of, but He enters into time, enters into the material world and and suffers for love of the world and it's so expansive i there are several people who have com- you know little little tiny commentaries on it that have deepened in my appreciation for it rowan williams has a wonderful book and a uh, little book and uh, ben myers recently is australian uniting church theologian and teacher uh, has a wonderful little book that lexham press put out i think it's just called the apostles creed I love Karl Barth's outline of dogmatics, which is his view of uh, his perspective on the creed. Hans Urs von Balthasar has a wonderful book called Credo. And it, just getting different takes on the creed. I've described an Anglican, a uniting minister, a Catholic, and, and a Reformed teacher, sort of like looking at all of them and how they see it and, and what it means to them. I do think that. I'm going to I'm going to lean toward trusting the ancient quality of it and where it comes from but also like how contemporary people have encountered it and continue to interpret it to the world. I don't think I'd want to write anything but I think all of us it's like making the sign of the cross. 
people think making the sign of the cross is Catholic and Orthodox. It's not. They're, they're making the sign of the cross. We know from Basil, we know from Tertullian was something that came with the letters of Paul. It came with, you know, bread and wine on the altar. It came with the cross as a central focal point of our faith. Making the sign of the cross was just Christian. There wasn't, there wasn't an Orthodox church. There wasn't a Catholic church. It belongs to everyone. And the creed in that sense belongs to all Christians. And I, I think a greater appreciation for it is, is where I would want to start. Is the church that you dream of not necessarily partisan, but politically active? It has to be. Uh, can I, I'm going to talk about war for a second, because I think it's an interesting way of getting into what we're, what this whole thing, how is Jesus in the world as a human being? And we can talk about the history of just war theory in Augustine, which comes pretty late in the first Christian tradition, but there is simply the way of Jesus in the world that's reported on by his disciples and commented upon in the rest of the New Testament and Paul and James and and uh, the other writers. And a, a life where love your enemies, do good to those who do evil. And somebody who lives an entire life of sort of self-sacrifice and not taking up the sword and not relying on violence and actually by his death sort of exposing the the darkness of our violence. And then three plus centuries of people who follow that person and how he lived by not taking up the sword. Christianity, one of its authenticities is the way the first Christians followed their Lord, the person that they believe was the creator, who also loved the world enough to become one of us and die so that all human beings in the cosmos might be saved, that they actually followed his way of life. And I do think that for the church to be authentic in the world, at some point, and I, I was just meditating on this, and I've been meditating this for years, at some point it seems like if we're the body of Christ in the world and we're connected to the way this particular individual lived, why wouldn't we also need to collectively, as the body of Christ in history, at some point, give up the fallen way of self-defense and give up the, the, the fallen way of offensive military existence and force and coercion and actually collectively enter into the cross and the way that he was in the world? and. And if we were to do that collectively, maybe that would be an appropriate end to history. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, you and I, I don't know. I don't know about you. I sometimes do this you and I thing. But I was raised in a teaching that Jesus is going to come back. Not what I love about the Gospels is, you know, the angel says the same Jesus who you saw ascend into heaven to the right hand of the father in the flesh that Mary gave him is the same Jesus who's coming back. But I was taught that he's coming back as this badass who's going to, you know, kick ass, you know, he's really coming back and there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. And then we're like going to join the army and kick ass too. And I think that's, that's got to be wrong. And that if we were to actually collectively join his way in the world, maybe that would be the way history ends is for the church to actually mirror her Lord again, collectively across all these different divisions and denom denominations and creed and practices that we have, that we that we would 
actually be like our Lord. And that would be the, that would be what brought about the maturity of the bride and the, the return of Jesus, because he's got a bride that so matches his essence, the essence of God, the way God was in the world and the human flesh of Jesus. And that's, that's political, brother. I mean, that's a, that it's not partisan, but it is political because it's saying we are going to be like this one in the world. And when God came in human flesh, as Plato understood it, uh, it would happen. Uh, the principalities and powers of this world of darkness and violence and are going of the will to power and to grab at and grasp for and try to contain and hold power. We're going to go after love when it, when love became incarnate. And, and if we're going to be like him, the principalities and powers of this world are also going to be at odds with us as it has been the case historically, even for a remnant beyond Constantine, there's always been a remnant of Christians who were suffering in the body of Christ as Christ suffered. And that in America, that might not be true for most of us, but there are parts of you know the body of Christ that today are suffering in the same way Jesus did for the same reasons. The religious and political authorities of the cultures that they're a part of are not happy and not content to let them be in the world as they are because they're the church. Can I ask you just some random theology questions? Go for it. What is God like? Hmm. I think we can have human being. Carbart says that, you know, human beings are capable of imagining God. That's one of the things that we have this capacity to imagine God. And we've imagined all kinds of God. We're able to think of, you know, the highest being possible and so forth and so on. And the most virtuous and the most powerful, the most all in all being. And he says, and when you think that you're not thinking God, we only begin to understand the image and likeness of God when we encounter the person of Jesus Christ. And so God is like my friend, my friend, Brian Zahn, God is like Jesus. Before the apostles wrote the Gospels, there was first an encounter with a person, just like you and I are having this conversation, and not face-to-face, but it was an encounter with a person. And it was only after his death and resurrection they began to ponder and, and teach and preach about him, and finally through amanuenses or whoever, you know, these things were written down. But it's first a living experience of the living God in human flesh. And so God is like this person. I, I, John Paul II once said that when we read the Gospels, we're eavesdropping in the words of Jesus and in the things that he does and his actions in the world and his bearing as a human being. We are eavesdropping on the relationship that he shares eternally with his Father and Spirit. So we're, we're seeing into God through the flesh. He, that's, the, that's the mediating. Jesus is the mediator of their, their eternal communion, their eternal invisible communion. So if I want to know what God is like, I don't need to imagine, because that's how we end up with Ra and Mars and how we end up with Isis and, and other gods that aren't God. But I encounter the person of Jesus and began to contemplate 
the divine nature and what it means to be divine and what it means to be human in Jesus. So if I want to know what God's like, I want to contemplate the words and actions of Jesus in the gospel. What is the gospel? This is going to sound like I I have only one thing to say. The gospel is simply the words of Jesus and the action of Jesus as God and man in the world, the Son of God, this person of the Son, as a manifestation of what it means to be human and what it means to be to be to be God. The, there's a, there's a, several places that we could talk about this, but let's just look at when the disciples are on the boat in Galilee, and the storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep on the boat. In the Old Testament, and our our wisdom, what our wisdom tells us in the Old Testament is that God never slumbers or sleeps; that He's ever watching over Israel. And yet, here's a human being who's God, who is who's asleep on a boat in Galilee. When we hear that part of the gospel, we think, oh yeah, he's asleep because he was born of Mary and he's a human like the other disciples and he got tired and he needed to sleep. What we don't allow ourselves sometimes to, to contemplate is that this is the creator. This is God who's asleep on a boat. Then the disciples are afraid, the storm, there's lots of water coming into the boat. They freak out and they turn to Jesus and wake him up. And Jesus has a conversation with them about faith and why are you so why are you anxious and things like that. But then he speaks a word, probably in Aramaic, to the wind and it's be still. And creation, the nature, the natural order of things responds to a human voice. And and the way we read it is, we tend to read it as, oh, he's God. So, of course, if the creator spoke to the wind, if he made the wind and he made the sea, it, it would become like glass because he's God. But but Jesus has to find his sea legs. He's a sloshing, water sloshing the boat, the disciples and the smell and the ropes and everything else. And, and he has to find his sea legs and, and say the word. And so all the time... The gospel is about a person who is God all in and human all in. And he shows us what God is like and what it's like to be human. And I was thinking about this. I'm always like the incarnation and Christmas. It's always like I see something new that I hadn't seen before. And something that I think really came to the fore for me this year is as, as we're thinking about the contemplating, what is the gospel? Gospel are the words and actions of Jesus and contemplation of their word, uh, of his words and actions. And, and not just that, but his temperaments and, and his attitudes and his dispositions. And we're always thinking about Jesus as the model for like not sinning and does the right thing always. And he always is in perfect communion with the Father. But there's a lot of things that happen to Jesus, like grief at Lazarus' tomb or his brooding and mourning and depression over the state of Israel as he mourns and prays over Jerusalem. Or his anxiety in the garden as he contemplates suffering, and and uh, even his even his de- his moment of doubt in the crucifixion as he's suffering mightily in his humanity as God, he's like, "Where are you know? Where are you, Father?" All of these are human experiences without sin. 
you know, th- overthrowing the, the the tables in the temple. There's a there's a there is a righteous anger there, and so sometimes we're angry. Sometimes we're 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 despondent. Sometimes we're we're anxious. Sometimes we have doubts. But Jesus shows us that all those things are just merely human. It's not. We think sometimes of these emotions and feelings and processes that we're having as sinful, and I, I you know, obviously they can become that. But Jesus shows us that that first of all, they're just merely human. So the gospel is a story of a God and the creed. I think the Apostles' Creed is is the condensation, the what what Aaron is the regular fide, the 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 heart of the faith is God makes the world in a love. God loves the world that he makes. God shows that he loves the world by becoming what he makes in order to rescue us from death and bring us back into his way of eternal life, which is he's doing from the moment he takes, he's conceived in the womb of the virgin and submits to all of that contingency and the one who makes everything time and the world now becomes a slave to hunger and thirst and to time and to death. And then in the waters of baptism, he doesn't stand outside that, but draws near to every human being by also going down into the waters, even though he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he goes down into the waters because he doesn't want to, as Bonhoeffer says, he doesn't want to be the only perfect human being taking upon himself even though in the in the womb of the virgin and as he's as he's teaching in the temple and as he's working in the carpenter shop with Joseph and he's, he's entering in the waters of baptism and as he's tempted in the wilderness and as he goes around and preaching and healing the sick taking upon himself everything that it means to be human and being tempted in every way as we are experiencing everything that it means to be human and all of our poverties and dying for the life of the world, he becomes what he loves, and then he dies for the sake of what he loves, that what he loves might eternally participate in his kind of life. And I guess that wasn't a short answer, but that's my answer. It was a very, very good answer, though. I loved it. Now, you mentioned earlier Rambo Jesus coming back uh, in the second coming to slaughter one third of the occupants of the earth. Is Jesus coming again? And if so, for what purpose? Yes. Coming back, this, the same one who you saw depart is coming back. He's coming back at the end of history to bring a fitting consummation to the world that he makes. You and I grew up in this faith and tradition that longs for Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, uh, maybe for some of the wrong motivations at times. But this desire that Jesus would come back and bring a fitting into history is a godly one and a godly hope and our expectation. I think sometimes it can get us to forgetting that he has come, that he is coming. There, there, are, there are three advents of God in the world. There is the advent of God in the flesh of the Son in Mary's womb. There is the ad, ongoing advent of, the, of God when we encounter him in the poor 
And, and when we encounter him and other members of the body of Christ, he's coming to us. I have an expectation that every day I'm going to encounter Jesus in a human being that comes to me. We forget that he constantly comes on the tables and altars and kitchen tables and anywhere the Eucharist or the communion or the Lord's Supper is being celebrated in any church throughout in any organization, any group of Christians gathered underground or in a family room or whatever. He's coming in bread and wine every time. He's coming in prophets, the voice of prophets. He's coming in the voice of, of women, uh, his daughters prophesying. He's, he's uh, preaching. He's coming all the time. But yes, he comes at the end of the world to consummate a kingdom in this world, to make this world everything he intended from the beginning. And then he'll be all in all, and darkness will be banished, death will be banished, suffering will be banished, disease and famine and war and everything that, that isn't about love is banished from us like straw and fire, as Athanasius says. Everything that is not, and, and so my friend Fleming Rutledge can say, I welcome the final coming of God in history. For many of us, that's going to happen well before the end of the world. The second coming of Jesus for, all, for every human being is when, you know, the moment of our last breath. And, and in that moment, everything that's not of love in the encounter with the God who loves us, is burned away. We aren't destroyed, just as the earth won't be destroyed, but we are transfigured and transformed, and all the tears in our life are burned away, and only the wheat remains. The chaff is burned away, and only the grain remains, and crushed and and, and made participant forever in the divine life and shine like the sun forever in the kingdom. So he, he's coming to make everything the prophets say, the, 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 the lion lies down with the lamb. All the peoples of the earth come together. The new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and they, we beat our swords into plowshares. And we, um, we don't, we learn not to make, learn not to make war anymore. Isn't that a beautiful idea right now? My goodness. Wow. All right, last question. Why are we here? I think every person has this mysterious encounter with God and the flesh of Jesus. And I think it's it's I think he's only he is capable in the in the recess of our hearts and in the the movements of our life and in the experiences we have able to reveal to us why were here and why what are i don't know how we fit into the the grand story i think one of the things i i I've lately been sort of hesitant about this idea of purpose and because I, I i'm falling more and more in love with the idea that god is simply god and that he loves us simply because we are and we're here because god loves us apart from our purpose, apart from what we do, apart from our part in the story. He's God, and what God does is love. And he makes things in love. He makes persons in love. He makes persons that, to be in relationship with us for love of us. 
And we're here to experience love and to love in return without like, what's my role? What's my place? What's my part? What's my, per- you know, purpose, which I think can devolve into all kinds of like, God loves me because I do this, play this role, or God loves me because I, I, you know, this is my part in the story, or God loves me because I have this purpose to fulfill or whatever. Just getting back to the simple contemplation that God loves you because you exist and, and he made you in love and he's going to redeem you in love. And in that, I think there's a discovery for every person. Once that is really known at the depth of who you are and we kind of like a roller coaster, we go up and down in that experience. We start to get glimpses of what our vocation is in that. I love what Frederick Buechner says about, you know, vocation is where your joy and gladness meets the world's deepest need. I think we start to discover where our gladness meets the world's greatest need. But we do that from a place of just really tremendous rest in the fact that we exist because God is love. We exist to be loved by God. And we exist to love God, and we exist to love our enemies, and we exist to love our neighbor. It's been such a gift to talk to you today, and I'm so grateful for your time and how generous you've been with it. Before you go, would you, uh, I'm going to ask you to close us out by praying for the listeners, if you would. But before we do that, how can folks engage with you in your work? Uh, The easiest way to do it is to follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm not on Twitter a lot, but I am, most of what I write, uh, a lot of my sermons, uh, things things that are published in Mockingbird or on Huffington Post or Christianity Today or wherever are also posted to my Facebook profile and to my Instagram profile. And so my Instagram is at K-E-N-T-A-N-N-E-R. So it's uh, at Ken Tanner. I I, I don't know if I spelled that right. K-E-N-T-A-N-N-E-R. And then on Facebook, I'm, I'm simply Kenneth Tanner. You can Follow. You can find me on Facebook by my email address, which is uh, Kenneth Tanner at M as in Mary, A as in Apple, C as in cat.com. They can also Google me and they will discover on Brad Jersak's Clarion. They'll discover on uh, lots of websites and blog posts uh, that are out there. So they can do that too. Google, Google Kenneth Tanner. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We're going to link to all of your social media and the show notes for this episode. So listeners, you'll be able to find him very quickly. And I hope you will connect with Father Ken. He's such a gift and such an encouragement. Uh, as he mentioned earlier, there's so much noise uh, in the world and specifically in social media today. But there's a peace that emanates from the uh, social media that you put out. And I'm so grateful for it. Would you pray for us? Yes, yes, Jason. Thank you for the privilege of praying for the people who are listening. Christ our God, come to us uh, wherever we are, listening in our car, in our home, walking the dog, uh, wherever you, wherever we are right now, and reveal the heart of the Father's love 
for creation and for every human person. Reveal to us that you made us in love to be loved by you. Help us to understand that we are made also to love you, to love our enemies, to love our neighbors. That you're always with us in everything we're experiencing. Not standing outside of our sufferings, our anxieties, our hungers, our thirsts, but really on the inside. I remember, Lord, earlier last year when that young man who's so dear to so many of us was lost out on Lake Michigan and I was sitting across from his sister and in her grief and listening to her grief for an hour. And one of the things that she said was, here I was planting flowers in the backyard and he was out on Lake Michigan suffering and alone. And I remember that voice that isn't my voice, Lord, speaking to me, he wasn't alone. I was with him, drowning with him, dying with him, going down into the deep with him. And I'm always with him and I'm always with you. And I'll raise you up and I'll raise everyone up into the life that I share with my Father and Spirit. So, Lord, wherever we are right now listening to this, remind us that we're never alone, that you're inside of our experiences. Not outside. That's the kind of God you are. And I pray for your shalom and your grace and your mercy to integrate us in a scattered and distracted and frenetic and anxious world. Cause us to be instruments and the presence of peace. People who are aware of your presence in the world and joining your work wherever you are already working. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Ken, I love you. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, Jason, this was fun. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.